from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a Vimepair podcast, the next round conversation, opportunity for us to explore additional stories and people in the world of beverage alcohol. And today I've got the privilege of being joined by two real wine experts, uh, Ted Diamantes, who's the founder of Diamond Imports, and uh, sommelier and wine educator, Steve Olson. Thank you, gentlemen, both for your time. Well, thank you, Zach. This is a pleasure. Yeah, Zach, great being with you, man. Yeah, my pleasure. So I, I got to be honest, I one of the great trips of my life to this point has been a, was a trip to Greece a, a few years ago uh, that I took with my wife and uh, was obviously involved plenty of food and drink, um, as most of my trips do, of course. Um, but one of the things that I found really fascinating and where I kind of wanted to start with both of you, because you have um, such great perspective on what has happened and what is happening in the world of Greek wine. And and the thing that I found very fascinating everywhere I went, uh, a number of different wineries throughout the country was a real conversation about focusing production on native and indigenous varieties. And, and I, that may sound to some of our listeners like, well, duh, I mean, isn't that what everyone does? But I think, you know, maybe we can start with this um, question for the both of you. And, and maybe Ted, you can start when you first got into Greek wine and, and into kind of exploring it, what what was being made? What were you tasting and, and what was out there? Yeah, that's a great question, Zach, because, you know, knowing where we start and where we're at is 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 always a great starting point for a conversation. Uh, now, um, yeah, Greece was uh, uh, very unknown. Uh, most of the production, this is now, let's go back to 1990, 1991, 1992, when I actually started the company in 92. Production was mostly focused on, number one, bulk wine. Um, uh, usually blends, um, mono varietals, where uh, we're being created in certain appellations, but they're creating more in, again in a bulk wine form. There was uh, Retsina, which for me was the R word. Getting over that was a big thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and and there was with the new wave of, of of producers that were just emerging relatively within the early '90s into the late '90s. There was the start of the focus of going back to doing uh, better cultivation of their indigenous varieties, but there was a movement uh, that some Greek uh, cultivators, growers, and wineries that they thought their entree onto the world stage was going to best be suited by doing Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet, and things like that. Um, and so there was a lot of people ignoring the Greek varieties and trying to lean into that. Uh, so, and, and also what happened is a lot of these younger winemakers at the time, younger winemakers had studied in France or Italy and some other, mostly France. So they got more familiar with their non-indigenous varieties and okay. working with those than actually cultivating and knowing their own varieties and how they were mis, overall miscultivated at, until that point. Yeah. And so, Steve, I'm curious, you know, as someone who was working in the wine trade then as a as a sommelier and continued to, you know, now, again, as I sort of said before, we think about places like Greece and, and many other European countries as being so exciting because of the wealth of indigenous varieties and, and an opportunity to to taste things that aren't grown other places. But but, you know, as on the on the restaurant side, was the, where was the American palate and where was the American interest? Were people in the 90s? looking for any of these wines or was it really like, because I, I think part of the story here that we'll get to is, you know, kind of the both of you uh, collaboratively and with other people, of course, sort of championing these, these indigenous varieties, but, but was there, was there an audience for that or were you kind of just hoping to create it? 
Well, another great question and, and a perfect evolution of this. As as Ted said, you know, when I first started paying attention to Greek wines, it was because of the indigenous grapes, but they were few and far between in in production or, or rather in export. And when I first went there, um, and it was because I'd tasted some indigenous wines that blew my mind and they were all terroir driven and old school. And I'm like, wait, 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 where are these coming from? Because mm-hmm. at that time, everybody... Um, not everybody, but most of the producers were starting to lean towards international grapes. And as Ted said, and, and maybe more importantly, the technique of the moment, you know, Mm. everything wanted to be barrel fermented. All the whites had to be in Oak, even Sauvignon Blanc, you know, everything had to be um, parkerized with, you know, really, really ripe fruit and so forth. And as I saw Greece, when I first went there and freaked out, um, you know, first of all, everyone has to understand the Greek people, because that's really what this is all about. And by nature, they are anarchists. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's getting them sure. to work together or think that way is quite... And I say that, by the way, as a great compliment, because I admire and love these people. But they are responsible. They have a culture going back thousands of years for not just the first wines, but the first culture of wine and food together. And they don't think about it. They just do it. And they do it so naturally. And when you go to the villages, you know, you even even at that time, you'd go to the villages and drink these amazing wines that were very simple, but they were great for the food. And they were all about the earth. And you have these mm-hmm. unbelievable vineyard sites with ancient soils, high altitudes, islands that are so remote from anything else. And, and then all of these little indigenous grapes several hundred of them that are growing just in one place in mm-hmm. one vineyard and many of them are being lost or at that time anyway many have been so saved and we'll talk about them later today and for me to your point there was at that time i felt that there was an audience and many of my peers did but we were working hard to create it we were working hard in our restaurants to bring those obscure wines that did speak of soil, that did speak of history and tradition, that were naturally good with food, and bringing them to the United States and putting them by the glass to get people to try them, matching them with feed, food so that people could see it and experience it. And there were, there were very few of those at that time, but there were enough of them by key players who had gone back to their roots, or even in a few cases, people who had never left them just weren't necessarily exported or weren't the popular guy yet mm-hmm. because the 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 movement towards international grapes and international techniques was strong. Yeah. And and so for me, that was really the beginning of my involvement. I I, I tasted with Ted actually in the late nineties and tasted uh Grand Cuvée from George Curris. We're gonna talk about him anyway. I mean, and I tasted Megaeno and Megaeno was like an international wine that was not. It was brilliant. And then Grand Cuvée was this really high altitude. I'm talking over three, like 3,500 feet in altitude okay. of ancient soils, of 100-year-old vines, of t- tiny, tiny yields of, of Agiorgitico, which I couldn't even pronounce at the time. And they wanted me to say St. George, but I said, no, we're going to learn how to say <laughs> Agiorgitico, and so are our people, and then they won't forget it. And I yeah. tasted that wine, and my brain exploded And I said, okay, wait, I got to meet the guy who made this. I have to see this vineyard. I need to go there. And Ted and I went with a very close friend of mine. Many of people would know Tara Thomas, who's a brilliant wine writer, who 
had worked in Greece, studied in Greece um, in culinary school. And so Tara knew a lot about, she knew more about Greek wine than anybody alive at that time. And uh, well, maybe other than maybe Ted. And, and I went with <laughs> we Tara. Won't, we, won't, no, we won't answer that question. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I went with Tara and Ted. So I was like, I had the two experts on either side of me. I said, treat me like a baby. I want to just have to drive the know. car. I drove the car and drank a lot of wine when I wasn't driving. When he wasn't driving. I want to make sure and say that. I want to ask a question in here to to kind of get one more piece of this out that I I think is important to understand. And and Ted, so, you know, you talked about how when you first kind of got uh, involved in importing Greek wine, there was was not a lot of uh, people, not a lot of producers who were focusing on, especially for export, indigenous varieties. And now I would say that uh, the the vast, you know, a good portion of your portfolio, as I understand it, is this, are the, are indigenous varieties from all over the country. So was there a, was it a matter of saying, you know, was it a matter of sort of convincing producers that this sort of international varieties, uh, Parkerized style just wasn't what the future was? Or was it more like you, they just needed someone to to say, I will buy the Ayurdietico, this the Asirtico, the Xenomavro, whatever, and sell it in the US? Well, like, was it more about convincing them that that stylistic path was a dead end? Or was it just about supporting what they were already making? Well, in both. Um, okay. in, cer- in certain cases, there was... Uh, uh, ideas that were being hashed out around a table or things happening in a vineyard that I would say, well, you know, look at it this way. Uh, yeah, I think you I, you probably are best suited and, and best for yourself to do more of this and less of that. And in other cases, p- these people were already on a track to, to represent their terroir and their indigenous variety. They might have needed some advice in terms of other things, whether with labeling and or flavor profiles or, you know, or, you know, what, you know, what is best suited in terms of uh, how to express that variety and that terroir best that I would, you know, offer, offer my opinion on. Uh, so there was both of those things going on and in, cur- in terms of my producers and it was, it was, a, it was inc- incremental how we created this portfolio and it was strategic. Uh, you know, we started with one person, which was uh, George Skouris, which uh, in my in my uh, humble estimation was one of the great pioneers and still is today uh, that helped helped uh, create the model of what Greek wines are today and also encouraged other winemakers, helped other winemakers in different regions. Because he said to me a long time ago, it's not about one producer for him to have a great wine producing country. You need hundreds of them. Sure. And it can't be just one. He goes, even if, it, and it's not an, never going to be an important region to the world if it's just one or two people. There has to be a lot of people. And that's why we have to help each other. And that's what George did. And then he directed me. He goes, go taste that guy. And he goes, you know, talking about uh, Sigalas, Domaine Sigalas on Santorini. You got to taste his wines. Uh, you got to go taste uh, Angelo. You got to meet Angelo Atreides from Alpha State. You got to talk to Stelio Butari when it comes to Xenoma, bro. Uh, you got to go to Crete and talk to Nikos Tulufakis. You know, those are the kind of things that we all helped, and he would offer his help. And each of them would also, call, you know, talk to them. We have a great little family when it comes to our portfolio, and it's something that I've always. Uh, and always to me, uh, for me, uh, one of the most defining and more important things, Zach, 
when finding these great wines, it's also finding great producers and great people like Steve alluded to it a second ago. People that understand a vision, had a long vision, understood the, the challenges ahead, how we had to change the perception of Greek wines overseas or including Europe, but in the U.S. market for sure, because they're, you know, the perception of all these uh, all these fantastic appellations, whether it was Daphnes and Crete or Santorini or Medion or or uh, or Northern Greece, Amantia or 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 the appellation in Amaya, nobody had idea of that, or that even existed in the United States. Yeah. Nobody had talked about varieties. We had to re-educate the population or the wine drinking population who was only enjoying Greek wines at the time. And, and this continued until maybe 10 years ago. This wasn't that far back in history that you could only find in Greek restaurants. And it was typically the lowest common denominator wine, except for yeah. some pioneering wine programs. Uh, Steve was involved with those years ago, you know, um, that would take a chance on, on Greek wines and or have more confidence so she okay. even upscaling the Greek restaurants and making them sure that they're that a wine is not just a commodity, but it's something precious, just like your food is, and treat it in the same manner and 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 honor what you're trying to give people. Absolutely. So I want to come back to this topic of of the of the Greek of these Greek wines at the table because I think that's kind of where we'll wrap things up because it's uh you know as you mentioned such a uh, an integral part of their expression in Greece and and remains so whether you bring them to the United States or wherever. But I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the producers that you mentioned, Ted, and let's start with Domain Skouros. Um, where where is it and what do they make? Because I think I, I know, but many of our listeners may be unfamiliar. Sure. And I'm going to give you the, the elevator version. Uh, southern, Greece, southern Greece, about an hour and a half southwest of uh, Athens. Um, uh -huh. It is a high mountain appellation. Steve, been there many times with me. Uh, very mountainous. Uh, the variety of the of the appellation is Ayorgitico, which is transliteration of that variety would be St. George. You might see it labeled in both ways. Uh, Nemea is one of the oldest, one of the not oldest uh, uh, designated growing regions in history, cultivating uh -huh. grapes specifically to make wine. By definition, the first appellation. Um, wow. And he and he also focuses on uh, Moscofilero in the southern okay. part of Peloponnese, which is an indigenous variety that is also a pigskin grape variety. Uh, that is that is uh, utilized to make white wine, primarily 90% white wine, the fantastic white wines that are, uh, you know, uh, Gewurztraminer-like in aromatics, but uh, lean and minerally in high acid about uh, high acidity and high mountain cultivation. And that was the that was the first winery in Greece that yeah. you worked with to import, right? Yes, yes. So, so what came next? What came next? Um, Oh geez, what did come next? <laughs> well, well or, or, <laughs> I, 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 oh shit! No one's gonna uh, fact check you on this. You're good. Yeah, thank you because I don't remember. No, what actually I did work with a couple other producers that at some point I um, uh, I we stopped our our collaboration. But okay. my my next seminal producer uh, would have been at, almost at the same time was Alpha State. Okay. Up in northern Greece in a medium, which was a, a, a chance I took, a chance we took on each other, uh, which okay. was a young, uh, great consulting winemaker that consulted at a lot of Greek wineries at the time, uh, and created his own project called an Amidion, which is an abandoned appellate, not abandoned, but very unknown uh, cultivation region, the coldest cultivation region in Greece, in northern Greece. Ted, you can safely I say at that at that time when Angela went there and brought that back, it was. 
basically abandoned other than local wines. There was nobody working in that region the way he was. Although I know we'll talk about Kiriani and their work up there also, right. but because uh, they were doing some stuff too. And that was almost simultaneously, right. but I, I didn't mean to jump in, but Anglo E3. No, please uh, do. Yeah, well, he's a superstar. Do. He's a superstar and, and considered by many to be, you know, one of the future greats. And oh, that was years ago. Now he is that person. And George and he are very, very close. And he took, George really took him under his wing. But Angelo, when I met him, was consulting on probably, I'm going to say, eight or ten of, of the top 20 wineries in Greece that I had tasted, that I tasted with Tara and Ted and others that, you know, I would taste a wine and say, wow, that's a really good wine. And then I'd say, oh, Angelo, of course. And we kept, his name kept popping up as the mm -hmm. consultant that was helping all these people really, you know, come into the new world where... Again, we were we were trying to advise them that the trends that they're seeing, by the time they make those wines, they'll already be behind us because a whole legion of sommeliers and writers are out there trying to preach this gospel of wines made in dirt, you know, wines made in the earth, wines made in the vineyard, and wines that are good with food. And by the time those wines are released, the 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 world will have changed. And while those wines still have a place, I suppose, as you know, Zach, better than anybody perhaps with your work, that was, you know, in the late nineties, that was where we were going. That's what we were trying to do. And you guys have taken it to a place we never dreamed of, but <laughs> Angelo, no, seriously. I mean, we worked hard and set a platform and you guys ran with it in a way that was, you know, all over the damn place. <laughs> yeah. And we're, <laughs> and we're proud of, of that. But that's what we wanted, and that's what we're proud of. You know that cool. that we, as a as a as a group, as a profession, have led people down the path of these beautifully, formerly obscure wines that are now world class wines. And an Anglo is one of those guys. Um, his his old vine Xenomervo. As a matter of fact, I think you guys picked it as uh -huh. like your number one wine recently. I mean, it, this it is has a, indeed done very very well. I mean, you're talking a hundred year old vines with tiny yields in a very, very special ecosystem. Um, and while most people know his Alpha Estate, SMX, which is his famous wine, and, and it's amazing, that old vine Sinoma, bro, you know, is insane. And it, and it sets a tone that nobody imagined was possible. His Hedgehog, which is one of the most affordable of the Sinoma bros, that has those same flavors, but in a more affordable, younger vine kind of style. I mean, that is really the wine that we were able to get people to start grabbing onto Xenomavro as a grape and going, oh, I love this. This is kind of Pinot-like. This is kind of, you know, it's less powerful. It's elegant. It's great with food. And anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Ted, but um, no, not at Angelo, all. But Angelo was a pioneer in that region, yeah, but absolutely. also with so many producers and like George. And I think this, you know, it, it was handed down to him as his mentor, but also stylistically, these two, like every one of Ted's producers, I'm happy to talk about any of them. I know them all very, very well, and they're all very good friends. Every one of them is the type of person who mentors others and brings yeah. people along. Part of what makes this portfolio so special to me is that every one of these guys are not just leaders in the craft. They don't just make great wine. They're not just the, you know, one of the best wineries in their region and one of the best wineries for their grapes. But they bring the others in their region with them. When I first went to visit George, he introduced me to five other producers in the area that he thought were great. That was just on our on my first night at, at a dinner yeah. where he invited them all to come and meet us. I mean, come on, who does that? Well, George yeah. Spiros does that. Well, someone definitely someone who wants to who wants to grow the the entire region, not just themselves. Right. Exactly. Um, 
So I want to talk about, yeah, I want to talk about maybe the the producer on here that and and the place on here that is maybe the most well about most obscure in some sense, but but probably least familiar as a wine producing region, even for people who are relatively uh, into Greek wine, and that's uh, Dulafakis on Crete, which is a place I went and absolutely loved. I mean, I loved all of Greece, but I think if you told me I could only go back to one part of of the country, it would be Crete. So where, where, what are we doing here? Cause to me, one of the things that was really cool about Crete was that it was in a way that like, I mean, this is maybe a crude analogy, but in the way that Sicily is to Italy, i.e. Italian, but also its own thing. Crete had very much that same vibe to me as in, oh, you know, Greek, cool. but also, yeah. but also, you know, its own, obviously an ancient civilization, uh, the Minoan sure. culture and all that, but, and, and just kind of its own, deal so so what 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 are we doing here what what is the the deal with the winery and what are some of the varieties because again i think very unfamiliar to most even you know relatively experienced drinkers well you're right dulufakis is another pioneer um and you know comes from a historic family meaning that his family had been there since about the 16th century uh venetian of extract which he just discovered recently from somebody searching mm-hmm. their roots and they came and found them from some italian family from venice <laughs> and came and found them yeah, like and, a, uh, you know, a former prince or something. That would be kind of cool. No, the, the <laughs> oh, story. Damn. Listen, if I wouldn't we had a be surprised. Podcast, if we had a longer podcast, it's a fascinating story. Fascinating story that this, these people uncovered. Uh, but his name, you know, uh, was Delfinos uh, back in oh. uh, prior to the um, uh, the Ottoman period of the island, which started uh, roughly around 1699. Because the island was Venetian until about 1699. Yep. <coughs> Excuse me. And. Um, so he, his family were farmers. His father, grandfather, great-grandfather were farmers that, that grew grapes and made a little bit of wine for themselves, but made bulk wines and sold to uh, to uh, other larger producers. And Crete, unfortunately, even to this day, still has a bulk wine mentality. It's getting less and less every year because of the leadership of people like uh, like Nico Dulufakis, who was the first guy who went in his family that got to college and went to wine school, and he went to Alba. And he mm. studied and he came back with his Pinmonte approach to these great varieties that existed there. And some of the best varieties of Crete, because they were being treated for bulk wine, weren't really, they, they, they lost favor by the farmers uh, because they can't sell them by the pound. And, they, and to produce better quality grapes wasn't their goal. It was to produce tonnage. So Viviano is one of these noble grapes with, that was off of everybody's uh, radar for generations until Nico being one of the premier uh, uh, pioneers of bringing cultivation back on Viviano, planting in higher elevations, uh, really expressing the variety. And now Viviano is going to be planted all over Greece. It's going to be the next Assyrtico story. Um, and then Viatico, a red variety that was being farmed for distillation. It was being farmed for sun-dried sweet wines, but it lost its favor of being farmed for red wines like the Venetians did for generations and sold it as one of their most prized wines to the Western Europe for hundreds of years. Mm. Uh, again, better cultivation techniques, better farming, lower yields, canopy management, all these things changed the profile of these varieties that existed in all over Greece and in Crete and in the Appalachian Daphnes, which we're talking about specifically, uh, in that region, which is all rolling hills of limestone. When I went to Crete and I just saw the limestone everywhere 15 mm-hmm. years ago, I go, Crete's going to explode. Because Steve and I, are for years, are, have the same approach. You look at the ecosystem, you look at the soil profile, and that's where it all starts from. And when I saw yeah. Crete and what, and what it was about, elevation and limestone, dry farming, but they have all four seasons. It gets cold there, too. 
because of the elevations, um, it's, I go, this place is going to be a winner. They're just farming incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And, and they changed that. And Dubufakis is one of the leaders of changing farming. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he came way later, though, because I was waiting for Crete to develop. My third producer, if you wanted to know that, was Sigalos and Santorini. Yep. Which was the groundbreaking producer that, as Stephen knows, was misunderstood here in the beginning until we started showing, with Steve, we started showing old vintages of Asuntico's okay. from Sigalos' hand. And people are like, holy Toledo. I can't say can I say that? <laughs> you can say, it's your, can I say hey, whatever you want, man. We swear oh, plenty oh, on the podcast. Oh, cool. I go for holy shit. People were like, <laughs> there's something going on here. You know, well, the they, best they, tasters they, in the world, the best yeah. tasters in the world were tasting these old vintages with us and comparing them to Grand Cru Rieslings and Grand Cru Chablis, and, and yeah. which is which were both apt uh, comparisons. And for us, you know, geeks, those are the wines, the white wines. A couple of them specifically, you know, that that we admire so much in their yeah. the way they age and change. And they're great when they're young, but they just keep getting more and more complex. And and Santorini is very much like that. And I think you made a great comparison, both of you, Zach. First of all, the comparison to Sicily, I love because like Sicily, it's a completely different microclimate as well or mesoclimate in this case. But Crete. You you know, you think of it because it's south and you think of it that it's going to be hot. But in actuality, like Sicily, you know, a lot of high altitude stuff with very, very balanced wines. And I mean, Vidiano, to me, is one of the uh, great formerly undiscovered grapes that when particularly when Dulafakis started making it the way they did. I mean, I proceeded to pour that uh, by the glass in every single restaurant that I touched just to show it to people with food because it had this beautiful richness and yet acidity and minerality and all the things we're loving in a great balanced white wine. And so your comparison with Sicily, I think is really, really appropriate. And we used this, uh, Ted alluded to Vidiano being the nest Assyrtico. Let me just explain that. Assyrtico is a grape that grows everywhere now and it's planted all over Greece and it should be because it's amazing. And no matter where you grow it, it takes on a different characteristic like Chardonnay or Pinot Noir in, in many ways. But Assyrtico from Santorini is a very, very special, unique wine. And Assyrtico from Santorini made by Parasigalis is the ultimate. It is... It is like, uh, you know, the great Grand Cruz of Raveneau. It is, you know, people who love wine respect him, his vineyards, his 130-year-old vineyards, his ancient way of making wine, his incredible technique, his incredible insight and feel for it. But Mm -hmm. those wines are so expressive. And honestly, when I first tasted those wines, that was... It was Skouris and then Sigalis for me. Okay. I mean, in, in regards to learning and having my brain just go, oh, my God, Greece has if I if those were the only two wines I could pour, that would have been enough to open that country's doors to the rest of the world. And it was. And then and 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 Chiriani and, you know, others right. that were there, too, right. that, you know, Ted has in his portfolio that we, I don't know if we're going to have time to get to everybody. But let me make sure I mention them because they they these were the guys that just mm-hmm. took it to the next level. But all of them, by going into the vineyard, making wines with low yields, with with ancient and modern farming techniques together, because as we know, we look to the past to learn and yep. then use the science of today to blend those 
Um, and in almost every case, very, very old vines, but in every case, indigenous grapes. And this yeah. is what we really pushed. Honestly, I think part of the reason that I was brought over by Ted in the first place was they needed to hear it from somebody like me, how important this Ted had been preaching yeah. this gospel to them of indigenous grapes. At Diamond Importers, he had started something that was totally different than anybody was really thinking. And he had preached this gospel to the producers and he needed somebody like me to kind of validate it and say, no, no, trust me, this is where we are going. You just have to look to the future. Don't look today because by yep. the time your wines come out, it'll be too late. You yep. have to look to the future. I want to, speaking of that exact topic of looking to the future to kind of wrap things up here, just a, a couple of quick things that I wanted to get both of your perspectives on. So we've talked a lot about some varieties that for dedicated drinkers, they might be familiar with. We talked about Zinamavro, we talked about Ayuritico, we talked about Sirtico, uh, we even talked about Vidiano on Crete. What are each of you, two or three others, maybe that are maybe even still off the radar, can be in these places or other parts of Greece that you have your eye on in the way that I'm sure you've had your eye on some of these other varieties that are now making their way into the market? Is there places or varieties that you're like, you know, if the way Ted, you were talking about with Crete 15 yep. years ago, like yep. you're just waiting. I, I have some. Oh, yeah, I have some. <laughs> Please. I don't know. If, you know, if, it's, not, if it's not. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. Trade secrets understood. Understood. <laughs> I'm going to run out of time. So I'm going to let Ted go. But the one I'll throw out that we haven't touched on that's really, really important to me is it. Malaguzia. Okay. Malaguzia is the other great white grape that's making world-class wines. And, and that's one to really go out and find if you haven't tried some of these. And then you mentioned it, Ted, but I got to go back to, uh, well, you talked about Liatico, which is really, really important, but I'd also throw in there Kotsefali and Bilana. Again, two Crete varieties that are just really important. Um, So Kotsefali and Bilana are Mm -hmm. are, in addition to Bilano and Liatico. Yeah, exactly. Really important grapes, in my opinion. So, and and then Malaguzia. And where, anywhere in particular for Malaguzia, Steve? Well, it, I mean, basically just north of Thessaloniki is where it kind of has okay. been brought back. Um, but people are experimenting with it all over the country now, and they're doing cool blends. Um, like Angelo makes one with Sauvignon Blanc and Malaguzia, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are playing with it because it's very aromatic. It's incredibly yeah. aromatic and has incredible texture. I, I'm not going to compare it to Conjure, but kind of that Viognier-esque um, and, and same with the ageability and complexity as well. Ted, if it's not sharing any trade secrets. No, no, it's not. And it's, it isn't. And I, and I agree. I, I love Malaguzia and, and Alpha State's version actually is one of the best versions. But, um, you know, and Cotifali, I really, I think cultivation and vinification techniques are going to be changing on Cotifali. And I think that is also a variety to look like. It kind of creates like Pinot-like kind of wines and, yep. and or Frappato-ish. Uh, for comparing to Sicily, and that's from Crete. Uh, there is a region up in northern Greece in Thessalia that I love uh, a variety called Mabrudi. And in, okay. uh, in Bulgaria, they call it Mabrud. Uh, the appellation okay. is uh, Moronia. It's an ancient Greek variety. Uh, I am very curious. I've been tasting that region for about a decade. Very okay. few producers. Uh, I, there is a project that's being worked on that I'm very curious about. Um, but I also, there is a region, um, there, but let's keep it at that. I think, uh, okay. that's, that's enough trade <laughs> secrets there. There's a couple other things I'm looking at. <laughs> 
we have to have something to talk about next time. <laughs> You're going to have to write up a, a, a lexicon and send it out to everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that actually leads me to my last uh, question for the for, for the both of you, which is, okay, so someone's listened to this. They're intrigued. They're excited. They're maybe not quite ready to get on a plane to Greece, although I, it's always a great way to learn. But But as far as finding these wines, what can people do? Well, I mean, obviously, wherever Ted's wines are will be these producers and, and sure. others that are equally as, as talented. Um, I would definitely look for Diamond Imports. I'm going to give Ted his plug here because yeah. he can't do that, but Diamond I will. Wine Imports. I would, WI. W <laughs> Diamond Wine. Yeah. Diamond yeah. Wines. And then I would yeah. also, there's there's a great website called All About Greek Wine. Um, okay. Our friend Sophia Perpera that we worked with for years and who is really, really a big part of of you know, bringing Greek wine to the fore. Uh, she's done amazing work and there's a great website where you can learn more about it. Um, but if, if you go to the website of Diamond, um, is it Diamond Import, Diamond Wines? Diamond Wines, yeah, I think. Diamond Wine Importers. Yeah, Diamond Wine Importers. Yeah. Go to that uh, website and then yeah. it'll teach you all of this. It's really educational, but it'll also yeah. then, I think it tells you where you to get them, I guess. Right, Ted? Yeah, we, yeah, we do. We have a, we actually have- I'm a not a marketing guy. <laughs> no, I don't. That's not, that's not me. I have to do that part. Uh, you know, we have a shop button on our website at www.diamondwineimporters.com. Uh, we also were in 46 states. Uh, we are in distribution nationally. Well, almost nationally. We're missing four. Um, you know, so online is also a great, uh, just do a search for our producers and you'll find them. We have national, uh, can we mention stores? Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like Whole Foods. Um, in, in most regions, carries one or two or three or four of our labels somewhere, um, and uh, of so all these producers that we sp spoke about today. Um, and the regionally, again, uh, a simple and easiest way is uh, is just jump on uh, that old Google machine, and, yep. and, uh, and you'll find them. And, and and that's the one great thing is that uh, the one good thing that happened during COVID is we. Uh, uh, retail uh, started paying attention to a little bit more. Uh, yep, we were Greek good. wines in, as a category were primarily on-premise and for restaurants, for your listeners. Yep. And uh, off-premise started paying more attention to it because all the Greek fans were drinking all the Greek wines and, and restaurants couldn't get them anymore. So they went looking for them on retail and all of a sudden the, the retail world uh, discovered us a little bit better. And now we, cool. we have a little bit more presence out there for, you, for your folks that want to grab and have a bottle at home. Excellent. Well, Steve, Ted, thank you so much for your time. Really fascinating to learn about both uh, the history of what you've done there and, uh, and what's going on now and in the future in Greece. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again.